Welcome to episode 20 of Back to the Futures, the official podcast of the Futures Collegiate Baseball League, presented by ChangeUp. I'm Matt Satilli. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Owen Shadrick. Owen, it's a pleasure to see you, and we've made it 20 episodes deep into this podcast series. It's great to see you. How you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. It's been a great week of baseball, and I can't believe, again, that we're already on episode 20. This is crazy. Scout days this week. We got a scout on today. Really excited. Ray Fagnant, the Northeast Regional Scouting Supervisor for the Boston Red Sox, was nice enough to join us. His son plays for the New Britain Bees. He served in that role for 22 years, and it was just awesome to hear from a scout who's gone through the motions of looking at these players and talking to us about his own experiences and what he would be looking for from one of the many talents in the Futures League. And as you mentioned, it's the start of three scouting days. So it will be Westfield and New Britain live from New Britain Stadium today, Monday, August 3rd. Tomorrow it's Worcester and Brockton from Campanelli Stadium. And then on Wednesday, it will be North Shore and Nashua. That is at Fraser Field. That was originally in Nashua, now in Lynn, Massachusetts. Owen, let's talk some baseball. What did you see this weekend? Yeah, Matt, on Saturday, I was in Brockton for a great doubleheader between North Shore and the Rocks. The Rocks ended up winning game one. North Shore ended up winning game two. It was a great all-around baseball, great pitching performances. And it was a great day at the plate in game two for Jack Worf, a fellow Minutemen from UMass. And again, some great baseball that we saw this week. Yes, yeah, speaking of doubleheaders, the New Britain Bees swept the Westfield Starfires the other day. They've now won four straight. They're 10 and 15. They've climbed up into fifth place. And they've really caught fire in the last week. They're riding those pitchers whether it be Price, Meade, Kasparius, Kirk, Sheehan. They've got a lot of arms, and their bats have really stepped up to the place, and New Britain's firing on all cylinders right now. Bees are buzzing. Bees are buzzing. I love it. Now, also speaking of the New Britain Bees, if you haven't heard, there are going to be three Futures League games televised live on Nesson starting tonight. It is our first ever television contract with a network. So 635 from New Britain Stadium, it will be the Westfield Starfires taking on the New Britain Bees. We also have two more games coming up. So this upcoming Saturday, the 8th at 1 p.m., it'll be Worcester Brockton. And then the following Saturday, the 15th, it will be North Shore Nashua. So all six teams get exposure. It's going to be a great chance to help grow the league and show the fans all across New England how we operate here at the FCBL. Oh, and what can you say just about how significant this is and how cool it'll be to get that media exposure on Nesson for the league? This is extremely significant. This is a great, great job by Joe Pellucci to get this going. Matt, you will be there on the sidelines. Emma Carmen, the media director for North Shore, will be on the sidelines as well. And Donnie Percaro from the Worcester Bravehearts will be doing play-by-play alongside the home play-by-play guys. Really great exposure for the league. So excited to watch these three games on Nesson. Also, shout out to Dave Peterson of the Worcester Bravehearts. He was another instrumental piece in getting these broadcasts on air, helping to shuffle the schedule around so that way all six teams could get some exposure. And just a true testament to how successful the league has been this summer and the level of competition and how everything has gone so swimmingly so far. Yeah, and with the cancellations of the Cape League and the NECBL, Plus, this Nesson contract and Scout Day, Futures League, is on a high right now. I love it. It's crazy that we're more than halfway through the season, but it's been awesome, and we have a lot of meaningful baseball in August. Still a lot of stuff to be decided in terms of the playoffs and also Scout Days for these players. So many of them have expressed how big of a deal it is for them, so super excited to get those underway. And we have a great interview with Ray Fagan. It's always good to switch it up and have a – person who might not be a player or a coach come in and explain their role and Ray had some awesome things to say about what the league has done for scouts so without further ado let's get into our interview here is Ray Fagnan at this time we now welcome on a very special guest for the last 22 years he has served as the Northeast Regional Scouting Supervisor for the Boston Red Sox it is Ray Fagnan Ray welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us today how you doing very good glad to be here thanks for having me Yeah, it's awesome to have you on, especially because when this episode releases, it will be the start of Scout Days. Uh, It'll be the first of three with Westfield and New Britain live from New Britain Stadium. We'll get into everything in detail in a second. But first, just to start off, how long have you been involved in baseball? Actually, obviously playing my entire life. But, um, you know, I got out of Assumption College in 87. I signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates, was with Pirates for a couple of years. Then I spent five years playing in the uh, Red Sox farm system. 
Then my last spring training with the Red Sox, you know, were in camp and they asked me if, uh, you know, I had a chance to make the Pawtucket roster. And they asked me if I threw good at batting practice. So I guess that meant that uh, they didn't envision me catching Boston any day soon, but they wanted me to stay in the organization. And that was 93, and I've been scouting. Uh, I've had the area um, ever since then. I took over for the legendary Bill Enos, who scouted up here for 53 years. So I guess in the last 80-plus years, there haven't been a – there have uh, only been the two of us up here, but it's, it's been my entire life, and it's just what makes it so special is it's been with the Red Sox. You know, it's a team I grew up with. I'm a dyed-wool Red Sox fan, so it's made it really exciting on several different levels. And what goes into your day-to-day -day role as a scout with the Red Sox? Well, it's it's doesn't matter whether it's you know December twentieth or June fifteenth, you know the day after the draft. It's just you know every day there's there's no day off, if you will. And you know like today's a good example. We always operate as though the draft is tomorrow, and we had a Zoom call with the front office scouting department, kind of going over players, kind of an early look for next year, but also specifically identifying those players. You know, majority of them are going to be at the next, at the two events next week, the East Coast Pro and the Erie Code. So kind of identifying what our list would look like next June, whenever the draft is, and identifying where we are on those players right now and prioritizing who we're going to see next week. But it's just that's kind of like the uh, that's kind of like the MO is working every day as though the draft is tomorrow and just maximizing looks, constantly playing with lists and reshuffling them and just, you know, just trying to get it right because, uh, you know, scouting is, you know, basically just an opinion, if you will, on a player. And the more looks, the more opinions we have, if you will, the better chance we have of being accurate. But uh, you have to be able to go in a ballpark, maybe see one at bat, see one inning, and make a, make a decision on somebody. And you have to be able to do that. And if you, got the, if you have the luxury of multiple looks, multiple ABs, multiple innings, you know, all the better. But we always just like to stay prepared, know who we're looking at, prioritizing players, and, and staying on top of it. So walk me through a situation. Say there's a player you've been keeping an eye on for either a number of sessions or that you've been in contact with. What goes into contacting someone who might be more in charge of the entire oversight process versus just the Northeast region and asking them to come in and get another opinion or maybe asking the player if he wants to get a workout in front of the team or get an additional look before the draft actually occurs? That's a good question. The way the, the basic process works is I go into the season with, with, with what's called my follow list. Um, any given year, it may be, you know, 60, 70, 80 players. And this is any player that's captured my attention or caught my eye. You know, some of those obviously premium guys at the top of the list that are, you know, what we call the famous guys, if you will, that are nationally known. And we've got a lot of looks at some of the guys on the bottom of the list might be something as simple as, you know, how's it East Cobb? I was, uh, you know, I got one look at this kid and he hit a ball a long way or I saw one good inning or what have you. But we start with that list and we kind of prioritize them. And we're in constant communication. The next step above me is, is the cross-checker. And I have New England, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, uh, Delaware, PA. And a cross-checker has basically, you know, Quincy Boyd, my area, basically has three scouts under him. It's basically Maine down to South Carolina. So, He's looking at the top of my list. It's kind of like a pyramid where we're kind of shuffling guys towards the top. So it's something that I identify that's a chance of being a very good draft. You know, we all know about him. And the cross-checker who works with maybe a more precise list, you know, his list might, might be comprised of the top players from each of his three areas. You know, he'll look at that and, you know, I'll identify the guys that need to be what's called, we call cross-checked. He'll see those guys and he'll further prioritize his list and, you know, the national guy or the scouting director will see those guys. So it's just levels of kind of a pyramid where we kind of shuffle those lists and kind of uh, get them more precise at the top. So those guys are identified early and over the course of the season, you know, I'll try and get as many at-bats with them as they can. If it's somebody that cross-tracker comes in and sees and says, this is going to figure into, you know, he'll be prominent. He's going to figure in our top couple picks maybe. The scouting director is going to want to get as many looks. And anytime we can work somebody up, that's a huge advantage. And even if it's, you know, for instance, for next year's draft, we'll get as many looks as we can at them this, this summer and fall. And in the winter, little things like going, being able to go in and, you know, see them work out at a local facility or, you know, see a pitcher throw. And even if it's something as simple as just seeing a simple flat ground in December where he's just playing catch or something, just a chance to see these guys, spend some time with them get to know about their makeup and their background, get some familiarity with them. It's, it's a constant 12-month 
iterative process. So it's just, it's, you know, it's a lot of information, you know, a lot of getting to know these guys, obviously a lot of seeing as much as we can on the field, but it's just getting to know everything about these guys, their thought process, seeing how they improve, seeing the adjustment that they make and just ultimately getting comfortable and have a really good feel for them. But it's just, like I said, it just works out, you know, my big list and we kind of just funnel it towards the top and we try and be as precise as we can. So when it comes draft day, when there's literally a big board with 750 magnets on it, you know, ranked from one to 750, there is a, uh, it's an, it's an inexact science, but there is a science to it. So we just try and be as precise as we can, but just being as thorough and talking to as many resources and seeing as much as we can with these players helps us to prioritize them and line them up correctly. That's fascinating to hear the depth of what you guys go through just in terms of how those guys eventually make it onto the big board. And as a whole, what do you think the Futures League has meant to scouts this summer with sports more or less at a standstill? And now the Futures League giving you guys an opportunity to see a lot of talent, not just in the Northeast, but guys from big schools like a Vanderbilt or, you know, a player who might be staying with a host family. What has that meant to scouts to have a place to watch and stay active this summer? I can't overstate how great a thing has been for us. Um, you know, in a typical summer, you've got a lot of leagues going on. So the reality is guys are spread out. You might not see as many guys typically as at, at Futures Leagues games. But given the fact there's not a whole lot else going on, and also given the fact that the talent, the talent has been outstanding. You know, I've been going to games where there's 8, 10, 12, 15 scouts. I remember the first Sunday of the season in Britain getting there and seeing 18 scouts there. And it was tremendous. Guys were excited to see games. And that's continued. And the talent's been great. And the nice thing, one, one exceptional thing about this summer is being able to go back and see guys, you know, because there's a couple of high profile kids in the league and everybody, as much as they worked out for those five months, you know, during the quarantine, no matter how many times you threw bullpens or many, how many times you hit in the cage, these kids were just not ready for game speed. And, you know, you saw high profile prominent kids not performing well. But we had the luxury of keeping going, you know, going back and seeing them. And what's been amazing, I'm sure you guys have seen it, just how much better just you know, over the first couple of weeks, how much better the quality of play has improved. You know, guys throwing strikes and hitters hitting and just the overall all quality of the play. And that's because kids have simply they've gotten the opportunity to get repetition. Again, no matter how much they practiced, you know, in the offseason and this year, especially the extended offseason, just to see how quickly the quality of play has picked up has been phenomenal. And also something that's been unique this year is to see lesser known guys, you know, maybe smaller school guys, but just to be able to see those guys um, where ordinarily, you know, we're able to see any given team, maybe two, three times, you know, we're able to go back and see these teams and, and get 13, 14, 15 players deep in, on the roster. And, you know, like an example, this this week it was great. You know, Cole Chudoba from, of all places, from Assumption College, from my alma mater. You know, I saw they had the 15-strikeout game. And the irony is, you know, I'd seen that team play several times. I saw Worcester play several times. And I went to my game cards. And, wow, I've seen 14 pitchers. I've seen 14 of their pitchers. I hadn't seen them yet. You know, I see one guy I need to chase down. But just a year where somebody from, you know, Division II school like that. And what's even nicer is my school, my alma mater. But just those kids – are had a chance to be seen and they're going to be scouted in the spring like they're on somebody's list right now so that's been great where it's given kids so many opportunities and you know I told my scouting director the other day this has been as much fun as I've had scouting the last 20 or 25 years because usually during the summer with all the major events all the big leagues the cape and everything you know there's just there's a finite number of days and there's so many things we have to see but this year you know, with the Futures League and other things like Legion Baseball, you know, good old-fashioned Legion Baseball and some of these Twilight Leagues, we've been able to go out and discover guys. You know, it's just been actual real scouting where we can see somebody, you know, see a Futures League pitcher, you know, 13, 14, 15 deep on the, in the rotation of the roster. And these guys have had an opportunity to play, an opportunity to be seen, and these guys are on the radar now, which has been great. Yeah, we've talked about the importance of D3 schools and kids from D3 schools getting these looks on these teams. And it's awesome that a guy like Cole Chudoba can get the strikeout record, especially him being from your alma mater. So 
Let's talk about other players on Futures League teams without giving away all your cards. Is there any specific player that you're looking at from the Futures League rosters this summer? What's been, what's, what's been nice is a lot of them have been in one place, you know, because with some of these kids, you know, some of the higher profile names, you know, that would have been spread out, you know, Cape, Alaska, spread out through the, you know, throughout the country. Every one of these rosters has good names. You know, I can go down, you know, not to single any team out, but just, you know, um, North Shore comes to mind with, uh, you know, the boys from BC with uh, Morissette, Freelick, and uh, one of my favorites, Burnsy behind the plate. But, you know, they've had a, you know, it's been good seeing those guys. And then, you know, Jared Dupree has been, had a great year. And every team have been, been digging up guys. I saw Keegan yesterday, Dominic Keegan, who got a chance to really be front and center this summer after a spring where he had some injuries. You know, I, he was player of the week last week. But most importantly, like, these guys have gotten a chance to get at bats. And a lot of that, these guys, too, has been a little bit of redemption where either they had a, you know, some of these kids, some other guys had maybe uh, – subpar spring it's completely it's completely understandable because it was a small season some kids are low are slow starters but to see them in the futures league you know just again maybe they didn't have great first couple games but we're able to go back and keep seeing these guys where you know we've seen the improvement over the course of the uh, over the course of, of the summer and i think what's great is a lot of these college coaches have understood where you know these kids need to play what happens in the summer is coaches will say, yeah, he's going to pitch, he's only going to throw 20 innings. You know, but the reality is I think you're starting to see where kids need to play. The only way you're going to get better is to actually play baseball. And playing games in the summer with fans in the stands, a runner on third base, and a tie game in the ninth, like these kids need to play. They need to be in those situations. And versus, you know, being, quote, shut down in the summer and going back in the fall and throwing very sterile vanilla bullpens or very controlled into squad scrimmages at school. Like there's, there's no substitute for being on the field playing in games. And what's great is a lot of these coaches are, have, have, you know, understand that and have really taken opportunity of putting these kids in competitive situations this summer, because it's, it, it's one thing to see a kid throw a pen and see these rap soto or, you know, pitch track workouts where they're throwing whatever, you know, it's a different thing to see them in a game again. Okay. Base is loaded tie game, ninth inning. Let's see how good you are right now. You know, that's when it matters, but giving them game experience. And that's what the league has given these kids a chance to do this year because you can never, no matter what you do, you can never replicate that, you know, in workouts or bullpens or BPs or inch squats. Also, in addition to the stuff you're seeing on the field, I'm curious how you value some of the intangibles. Just getting a chance to talk to some of the kids, you know, getting to know them a little bit off the diamonds. And if there are any make or break decisions, you know, if there are any factors that go into if a kid's on, if you're on the fence about a kid, whether or not you invite them to a scout, just any red flags or any things that really stick out to you that a player will say or indicate that is not entirely based on his play on the field. That is huge, and I think people are starting to realize that is a big, big, big part of our evaluation in our process. You know, we talk about makeup and, you know, things like that. Um, a lot of times when it's really busy in the summer, you got a lot, of, a lot of events going on, you know, you're just jumping and seeing a game and, and really can't see things in depth. So that's the value. Again, I spoke about, you know, our winter workouts, off-season workouts, off-season visits. But the way it's been beneficial this summer is, you know, getting to a game, say, you know, the team's got a 5.30 game, they got a 3 o'clock BP. It's interesting to get there at 3 o'clock and see who's dressed on the field ready to go and see who's wandering in 10, 15 minutes later, you know, when they think you aren't watching. A very valuable part of scouting is seeing players when they don't think you're watching them. But that's a big part of it. You know, their pregame preparation. Or just there's players on throughout the league on teams that, you know, we might know more on a personal basis. And I can say, and they're comfortable, say, hey, how about this guy? What kind of teammate is this kid? But that's very important to know. But especially now, you know, everybody was so full of enthusiasm and fired up the first couple of weeks of the season. And that's understandable because they haven't gotten a chance to play. But right now, you know, when you talk about getting to the dog days, and this is something these kids aren't used to because most of the time by the end of July, their season's winding down. But it's late July. They got another couple weeks of the season. You know, it's 95 degrees. You know, they got optional BP at 3 o'clock. You know, who shows up at 3 o'clock? That tells you that speaks volumes about these kids. 
and how they go about their work and watching the pitchers throw their early afternoon BPs, you know, watching guys catch pens. But, you know, you find out, you know, the game is one thing, but you find out which of these kids really want to play, how committed they are, the desire, and, you know, little things like, I know something the league probably doesn't love is the fact that kids have to drive to games. And I completely understand logistics and why it needs to be done. You simply can't have buses. They are being very responsible, but the league is being very responsible in, you know, unfortunately having kids get themselves to games, but that's a part of it. You find out a lot about somebody's time management, you know, you're living wherever and you got a two hour drive to get to Brockton. Well, you know, do I leave early, you know, get there on time, get there early and what have you, but you learn a lot about these kids time management. You learn a lot about their discipline and you know, how committed they are. And that is something I absolutely always, always notice is, when kids get to the park, you know, what they do when they get there, their pregame preparation. And um, I was up at Lemonster last week and it was, you know, it was a 98 degree day and it was a five o'clock game, three o'clock BP for the away team. And I got there about two 30 and one of the players was already out. One of the, one of the visiting team players was already out in left field. He had his, his bands hooked up to the fence and he was doing his, his Jagger band exercise and, this is a half an hour before you even had to get there. It's on a hot day on Saturday. He had a two and a half hour drive. And that spoke volumes about his desire to play, you know, how committed he was and how serious. And those are things that you, you can't fake. And it was just really, really interesting to see. And that just speaks volumes about these kids. And that tells you a lot. Before we return to our interview with Ray Fagnan, we wanted to share a message from one of our sponsors, ChangeUp. We're excited to announce a brand new partnership this season with ChangeUp, a cutting-edge, player-centric pitch tracking solution promoting health and safety, allowing coaches to capture and analyze a proprietary set of performance analytics, and helping pitchers maximize their potentials. Coming to baseball programs around the world this year, ChangeUp eliminates the administrative overhead associated with adhering to pitch count regulations, allowing coaches to focus on baseball. Coaches and parents at all levels, Little League, AAU, high school, and the collegiate level, take notice. ChangeUp is the clear choice to ensure your pitchers aren't being thrown too much or too often and are getting proper rest. Together, we can make this great game even better by protecting arms and ensuring compliance with pitching guidelines. For more information, visit ChangeUp's website, www.changeup.io. That's www.change-up.io. ChangeUp. Every pitch counts. We now return to our interview with Ray Fagnan. Yeah, we can talk all day about the play on the field, but the little things matter just as much. Absolutely. And when this episode will be released, it will be the first of the three scout days, as we mentioned. What will you be looking for during these scout days, and which drills do you view as the most important for players you've already seen extensively? I love scout days. The only unfortunate thing is I won't be around for them. I'll be at the East Coast and the area code, but those will be well attended. And in the scout day specifically um, – it's another look to see some different things. Typically what we've done for every that I've ever scouted, every workout we ever have, we start with the 60. It's almost cliche-ish. We run the 60. And I always tell these players, hey, listen, I've been scouting for 25 plus years and I can't tell you the last time I cared about what somebody ran the 60 in. <laughs> but it's something that we do. You know, it's just to get a time, you know, just to get some degree of athleticism, maybe something to write down in a box, maybe something we do out of force of habit. But you know, you can see there's some kids that work at it. You know, some kids that, that, that work at running the 60 want that time. But what, what I want to stress to these kids is, you know, like the 60 specifically when I see them run that. I'm more concerned about seeing the athleticism, seeing what kind of shape they're in, seeing their stride, just kind of see them move around a little bit. Some kids get so over-consumed with their 60 time. And now that it's a showcase generation with perfect game and PBR and all these other things, You'll see these kids at 13, 14, 15 years old, you know, parents will spend thousands of dollars in the offseason getting them a, a personal coach or, you know, literally a running trainer to run a better 60 time or what have you. But I just want to tell these people just, you know, it's not necessary. Just go out, be in shape, run a few sprints before the game, just work at it. But specifically as it relates to these scout days, we will do the 60. And again, like I said, it's not make or break for me. It never has been. You know, I know Dustin Pedroia, for instance, did not run a good 60 ever in his life, but he was 24 out of 25 stealing bases in the big leagues one year. And Jackie Bradley specifically, not a very good 60 time at all. 
I bet if he went to a lot of showcases, if he was, when he was at that age, a lot of coaches or evaluators would say, hey, this guy can't run. But there isn't a ball you can hit in the field that Jackie Bradley cannot run down. So his speed plays. But for argument's sake, we will run the 60. <clears throat> Things that are valuable that, you know, everything that we do is valuable, some regard or the other. But specifically as it relates to scout days, uh, we'll take a, they'll take a very controlled, extended infield outfield. And that's when you can really monitor arm strength. You, know, you can watch somebody for four or five games and never see a ball hit to them or never see a ball hit to them in a situation where they have to make a throw. And we'll be able to, you know, gauge arm strength on all the position players. We really try and stay away from pitchers to ever have to do anything in the scout days because we don't want to disrupt their, uh, their game readiness, their bullpens, their side sessions, what have you. But uh, we'd rather just see them in games. We don't want to put them in a situation where they're going to try and do too much, potentially injure themselves. But it's more geared to the position players. But we can see them run with no variable. We'll see them run the 60. We can see them take an extended I.O. so we can monitor their arm strength. Uh, we can see some of their mechanics and some of their actions in the field. Uh, we can put infielders through in, in very limited time. You know, you, you guys will see it. You know, put everybody shortstop and have the obligatory – couple balls hit right at them, a ball up the middle, a ball in the hole, and a ball with a charge so we can see them moving like in all eight, eight baseball planes, if you will. And the BP, we're able to monitor the swing, see what sort of raw power they have. And what's really good is it's an opportunity to get some good video on these guys too because video is very big with us. We like to have, you know, as much of a video database as we can with these players. And also, it gives us a chance to, you know, maybe, you know, be on the field up close and just introduce ourselves to these guys and just get a little bit of feel for them and just see the enthusiasm they have going into these things. But and, and it's also on a, on a different level, another level, it's, it's a good opportunity for the scouts to connect with the coaches, ask about players, and it's just a huge, huge positive. And I'm just so upset that, unfortunately, I won't be around for them. But I will be sure to have somebody from the Red Sox um, there for them. And this year, because MLB is a little stricter with uh, their scout limits at the East Coast and the area codes uh, being down there, there will not be as many area scouts from the Northeast down at Hoover and uh, Lake Point. So there will be a good number of anybody that can be at these scout days will be there because they're tremendously beneficial for us. We really appreciate the league putting them on, and it's just a, it's just, it's a great opportunity to, you know, to see a lot of different facets of these kids and get a lot, see a lot of different dimensions. Yeah, so uh, as a follow-up to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, you mentioned that there's a list of high-profile players that everyone recognizes and knows is at the top of a lot of teams' draft boards. But is there a player in your experience that was a diamond in the rough that was overlooked by a number of other teams that ended up succeeding in the majors that you're proud looking back on? Um, I, there are so many. It's such a broad-based question. There's so many examples. I can't think of one off the top of my head right now, but – Anytime, anytime somebody from the area gets the big leagues, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. And, you know, especially, especially when it's not a high draft pick, but um, I'm sorry, I'm unprepared here. I cannot come up with a, I can't come up with an example because there's almost like too many here. But anytime somebody from our area gets up to the big leagues, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing for the entire area. And it's a great thing for all of scouting. You know, we love to see these kids, even if we don't get them. We love to see these kids advance and get to the major leagues and get opportunities to advance in professional baseball. And even if it's guys that don't get to the major leagues, there's so many examples of, you know, kids we've maybe drafted in lower rounds that go on to have an impact in the game. You know, I'm proud of the fact that I've got, you know, four or five guys that, you know, we drafted and signed that, didn't get to the big leagues, but, you know, they're good high school coaches or college coaches or coach legion. But, you know, they've shared their passion for the game, the experience they've had in professional baseball and, and kind of, uh, you know, to the benefit of, of the, the benefit of local kids. You know, just yesterday, Kyle Jackson, for instance, um, you know, the manager up in Nashua, you know, I signed him out of Alvern High School years ago. And he had a good career. He was an all-star in the Arizona Fall League. Had a really good career. And he was, it was funny. He was laughing about it yesterday, just reminiscing how it was really bad timing for him. You know, just how we had Lester and, and so many other big leaguers, you know, um, Buck Colts and Bowden and so many other big leaguers. He came up at that. We had a wealth of pitching his year. But, uh, 
you know, he's somebody that, you know, that's a perfect example. He's managing your league, doing a great job. The kids love him. He's developing these players. And just another, you know, an example of somebody that, you know, their experience in baseball, they're able to uh, go on and share it. They're positively impacting a lot of kids. Yeah, Kyle Jackson, part of the second place Nashua Silver Knights right now. So shout out to him. Oh, and his... He's doing a great job. And let's talk about your personal life a little bit. Your oldest son, Christian, he got drafted by the Orioles in the 39th round of the 2019 MLB draft, and he plays for the New Britain Bees. What was, what's it been like watching him in the league, and what was that moment like for your family when he got drafted? It was, it's, it's, been, it's been especially fun just because, you know, all three of my boys just love to play. And that particular day, I was somewhere in South Shore, this high school game watching Sebastian Keen. We had just drafted him <clears throat> and it was the state tournament. I was there to kind of monitor him and I was out in right field behind the fence. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, I'm listening to the draft and they announced, you know, with their 39th selection, Baltimore will select Christian Fagnett, catcher East Granby high school. And instantly I got 40, 50, 60 texts. It was really exciting. And uh, he was playing a Legion game that night. My wife called me, and she said she found out she, there was some little kid that's their bat boy, and he found out. So I don't know what a you know twelve year old bat boy is doing with a cell phone in the dugout, but you know he knew, and it was really exciting. She said with the minutes everybody at the ballpark knew, and so he happened to come up in the uh, the ninth inning, you know, minutes after, and you know it would have been anticlimactic if 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 anything uh, but something could happen. But he ended up. Uh, you know, hitting a ball off the right field fence, you know, she sent me the video, so it was really exciting. But that, I just remember that night coming home and just being so proud because I don't know if you were aware, but the year before, almost a, almost a year to the day, he had suffered a, a horrific leg injury in his first Legion game after his junior year, double compound fracture. And it, it was horrific. And he just worked really hard to come back from that. And, uh, you know, had a, had a good senior year. And I always told them, you know, that injury, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of D1 schools that were interested in him, but that injury, unfortunately, got precluded him from, from any of those opportunities. I always tell all these kids, not to sound like a dad, but if you're really interested in baseball, if you're serious about baseball, good grades and your studies are only going to help you. And so because of that injury, he wasn't able to go to the East Coast. The area Coast that year was, was off the radar for the summer, but he had exceptional you know, off the chart grades, you know, perfect SATs. And, you know, the academic schools, the Ivies and SCACs remained interested. In, and, um, you know, Amherst has been a great opportunity for him. And obviously this spring not being able to play, but the league has been great. And uh, what's been really nice about it is him being in New Britain. That's where I finished up my professional career with the Red Sox. And to see him there, and it's just been fun to see him play because in a typical summer, I get to see so little of my boys play, which is kind of, very disappointed, but I've been able to see him play a lot of games and uh, play, you know, play a part in some premium games. And just this Sunday was a great doubleheader at Westfield. You know, the first game was really exciting. He was, you know, um, Emmett Sheen went out and struck out, I think, 14, six innings, but there were a lot of scouts there. It was a great matchup. And, you know, my son got up in the last inning, the man on second, had a big hit off of one of our favorite players, you know, Reggie Crawford, who's going to be a big leaguer. You know, 93, 95, big fastball, really good breaking ball, and is a very, very good hitter. And, you know, my son got to know him through our through our East Coast Pro and Area Code events and, you know, went to the home run derby, the controversial, interesting home run derby, and it was a good second game. So that was just a great day at the ballpark, seeing some great baseball, a lot of scouts there, some great, some great performances. You know, seeing my son be right in the middle of it, but it's just been just, uh, and, and again, by no means minimizing the horrific events that have gone on, you know, the tragedies, you know, the literally millions of tragedies that have happened because of this, you know, this terrible virus. Certainly being aware of what's gone on the last five months. What's nice is, you know, the positive out of this is there have been some bright spots and these kids deserve these bright spots because, you know, a lot of, a lot of bad things have happened. You know, and everybody's cognizant of that, continues to think about that and pray for that daily. But baseball in whole and the Futures League specifically has just been a refuge for a lot of these kids. It was great to, just to see a lot of kids at the ballpark Sunday, a lot of families at the ballpark, a lot of scouts, and just, 
enjoying baseball, specifically what you know what your league has done for the baseball community in the Northeast this year. It's been uh, it's been a godsend. We're really we're really fortunate. We're really appreciative of it. But Sunday was just just a great day. We got to see a lot of stuff. It was a fun day at the park. Yeah, it's been fantastic to play baseball this summer, and we're we're honored to be part of it. And let's talk about the MLB draft for a minute. There were only five rounds this year due to COVID. How did you adjust, and how did that impact both your department and the players? Well, so many things leading up to it. Obviously, you know, the season finished around March 13th. I was in Florida for about five weeks, and that's kind of when we get the call to uh, you know come home. And I was going to stay down for another week or so. There was some very there was some very productive things going on down there, and also Amherst was coming down later that week. You know, so I was going to see them, but. My son called me the night before and said their spring trip was canceled. And then the next day he told me their season's canceled. He's coming home. And uh, my wife had called me and, you know, she's the uh, chief legal counsel for the UConn foundation. And she's just for the last five months, been 10, 12 hours a day for her, you know, running the school, kind of trying to stay on top of all this, but I've got, you know, got some good insight from her and she said, get home. <laughs> and so I got home and short on the way home bases when MLB kind of pulled the plug and said, all scouts off the road, you need to get home. That said though, about one third of the division one season was played. So in a sense from March 13th until the draft in June, March, April, May, June, we had three months, even though we weren't seeing games, we had three months to just every day, all day, just prepare for the draft. You know, there the majority of days during the spring. I'm driving four or five hours to a game. I watch a game, drive four or five hours home. So you're seeing games, but don't have a chance to, you know, do your admin work or really prepare. But this was a unique, hopefully once in a lifetime situation. But we were remarkably well prepared in the sense that we had seen what we had seen. And thinking about it, we had from last June up until March 13th to prepare, you know, all the summer work, the off-season visits, the video and everything else. But one of a powerful tool that we have that, you know, is no secret now, everybody has is a, a program called Synergy where we had every pitch of every Division One game played this spring. It's a sophisticated database where you can query things any way you want. Like, like any, a particular hitter I like, for instance – I could call up, you know, two strike at bats versus left-handed pitcher, you know, in certain situations versus breaking balls. But we're able to get a really extensive look at these players. And we had maybe over the course of that spring, two, three Zoom sessions where we're going, going over our list and kind of, again, refining our list towards the top. So we identified who we wanted in those top five rounds, you know, really had constant Regular conversation about these players, able to go over a lot of video, a lot of statistics, a lot of data, you know, looking back at statistics from previous years. And, you know, we lined them up and I think we, you know, pretty much, well, we'll know in five years if we got it right, but um, we're comfortable with what we got. We got the guys we wanted and the way that carried into the next process, which was also remarkably unique, the non-drafted free agent process for that, you know, that super Sunday, those 9 a.m. phone calls. We were able to use the same scouting and evaluation process and kind of identify the small list of players we were going to go after as a non-drafted players. And we were able to put together Zoom calls with these players where we had members of the Major League staff, the Major League front office, scouting and player development, and kind of give those guys a uh, kind of a preview, an intro and orientation to the Red Sox organization. Um, up until, you know, that Monday, that Sunday morning, we were able to start calling them. But in addition, we had some, uh, once we got the green light to be able to communicate with those, these players, we had those phone calls, Zoom sessions. In some cases, we had some of our major league players reach out to these prospects. And I think not only did we do well in the draft, I think we did very well in the free agent signing period where um, we got some guys that we really wanted. And, you know, that process in and of itself was remarkably unique where we had a strategy, we lined everything up. And... At 8.59, or probably 7 in the morning, every scout in the country had a number punched in and ready to hit send. And we were able to get two really good players. I personally was able to get two really good players. We got, uh, you know, Jake McKenna from uh, – McKenzie, rather, from, uh, from Fordham University, who was unfortunately was supposed to be a New Britain B this summer. Uh, so we kind of raided the middle of New Britain's lineup. But we got Jake. You know, he's going to be – he can really swing the bat. He's got a bright future in our organization. 
and also uh, right-handed pitcher Jordan DiValerio from St. Joe's University. I was not able to see him pitch in person this spring because of the COVID. I was planning on seeing that next Friday, but as a result, I saw every pitch that he threw on video, you know, numerous times. Was able to walk through the five games that he pitched, and he gave us a really unique view at him. And so, you know, because of our preparation, I think we had a good draft and a good free agent signing period. And so, in a way, it sounds almost oxymoronic, but this is probably the most, without question, the most thorough uh, draft process we've ever had because we had so much time to just look and evaluate line guys up versus, sounds weird, but actually seeing these players play live games. But it's something that we never, ever want to have to do again. But we were prepared for it. We had these contingency plans. And part of it, I guess, is testimony to our, our, the great job that our front office did, keeping us engaged and keeping us you know, perpetually prepared 12 months out of the year for the draft. Yeah, that's really neat, and uh, that's good to hear that I guess a lot of that downtime was used productively and that it didn't have as much of a negative effect as it might have looked like from the outside looking in. So talking about some other fun stuff about your experiences uh, around Major League Baseball, you were also a catcher at the 1999 Home Run Derby at Fenway. What was it like watching those guys like Mark McGuire, Ken Griffey Jr., Sammy Sosa from that up close and personal? One of my greatest experiences ever. And occasionally at three in the morning, if you're in a hotel room and turn on ESPN2, you can find it. It was something, like I guess, it was a once in a lifetime experience. You know, I was there for all four days. You know, the first day was the, uh, the first ever Futures game. You know, that's a staple of uh, All Star Weekend, what they call it. No, but that was the first ever Futures game. And I remember for fear of sounding, man, date, dating myself in the Futures game was uh, Alfonso Soriano and Lance Berkman a lot of other really good prospects who went on to from prospect status to have long distinguished major league careers and are out of the game. So I guess testimony how long ago that was, but you know, I got to see that futures game. The home run derby was such a thrill, you know, being close up to those guys and you know, be right behind the plate. And, you know, I played against Mike Piazza in the minors got to him pretty well. So it's neat to see him again, but just being part of that and just how great an experience that was. And, uh, you know, just amazing to see that that close up. And also, you know, that next night, just the all-star game, catching the bullpen for that. And that was, you know, Pedro's historic performance. And that was, uh, you know, never forget Ted Williams coming in the golf cart. You know, it's just such a, an iconic, you know, video of, of that. And also being aware that it was a Fox game. And uh, I knew in advance how to play the camera angle. So I knew where to stand in relation to Pedro Martinez during the national anthem to be on TV. <laughs> and, you know, when Ted Williams was going by in the golf cart, you know, I knew where to stand. So I was you know, right, in that, uh, right in a couple of those shots. But it was just a, a unique historic experience. And, you know, my position with the Red Sox has enabled me to do a lot of other things like that. But what the Red Sox really encouraged us to do that I've got a lot of respect for and is very beneficial is being on the field in any of, you know, any of these events as much as we can. You know, they really encourage us being on the field for, um, you know, the East Coast Pro. I've managed the team for several years now. The area codes are on the field for that, and we do the summer rivalry. And I've been very involved over the last three World Baseball Classics, you know, being a bullpen catcher for Team USA you know, being exposed to and around these guys, but just being on the field as much as I can, as much as possible, because, uh, you know, whether it's seeing, uh, going to scout kids at a 15-year-old, you know, 15-year Legion game, or being on the field at, w, at the WBC with, you know, 25, you know, Major League All-Stars, or, you know, catching pens with Buster Posey and Jonathan Lucroy, and, you know, catching these guys in the bullpen with, you know, Greg Maddox as the pitching coach. It's just, it's a, it's obviously a good scouting experience, but it's a, it's a everything, everything you do in baseball, every day is a great learning experience and being around these guys just, just, just makes you better. It's one of the great, uh, you know, one of the great perks of the job. Well, Ray, this has been awesome so far and it's been super insightful to hear what you've had to say so far. We got one final segment for you. It's called Quick Hits. It's presented by Zephyr, the official on-field hat of the Futures League. Zephyr, high quality and innovative design since 1993. So we got a couple more questions for you for our audience to help to get to know you a little bit better. Is that cool with you? Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Favorite teammate you've played with over your years? I got to go with Jeff Bagwell. Hall of Famer. That's the easy pick. I go with the Hall of Famer, but uh, it's a lot of fun being around him. That's great. Did you play with him uh, in New Britain with the Red Sox? In Winter Haven, originally when he signed, I had – I was with the Pirates 
got released, signed with the Red Sox, and we were in the Gulf Coast League together, and then went to uh, went to Winter Haven. Use there briefly. That was in that was in '89, but the year '91 when he tore up the Eastern League, I was actually in Winter Haven. I was with him the year before. Very cool. Favorite ballpark that you've either played in or attended as a fan or a scout? Um, I'll go Beehive slash New Britain Stadium in New Britain because, you know, that's where I played with the Red Sox, had all those great memories. And, you know, right across the parking lot, New Britain Stadium, I scouted – it was there briefly, but scouted there for the last 25 years. Um, that's where my boys, my wife, probably have most of their baseball memories because I had – I covered New Britain and brought them to so many games from the time they were infants, literally carrying the baby carrier you know, to the ballpark. And to see my son playing there this summer, it's just really gone full cycle. But there's a life, lifetime, just a – panorama of memories at New Britain ballpark yeah for any Connecticut guy there's a lot of memories and a lot of games as a youth going there seeing the Rockets, and especially for you playing there so great answer what's a baseball stadium or a sporting event that's on your bucket list that you haven't gotten a chance to attend yet I got you I got you um and I'm going to uh Field of Dreams in Dyersville Iowa my wife gave me the greatest birthday present of all time Next September 4th and 5th, we're, we've rented it out. We'll be at the Field of Dreams. Um, we've rented it out. We have full access to the house, the facility, the lights. So I'll be there with the boys. And we will be hitting balls into the cornfield until the wee hours of the morning. But that's something I always dreamed about. And, uh, you know, she's always uh, – there's, there's nobody who's ever been better at coming up with presents. And she came up with this completely off the radar. But that is, I guess, the ultimate, you know, bucket list dream field because you've done Fenway and Ken, and all the rest of them. But feel the dreams. I mean, that's as good as you get, I guess. That's, uh, you know, that's going to be a lot of fun. Cannot wait for that. That's incredible. We'll have to follow up and see how that experience was because getting the all-access pass, that's something that not a lot of people get to do. Uh-huh. So uh, either hearkening back to your playing days or if you were still lacing up your cleats right now, what would your walk-up music be? ABBA, Dancing Queen. Okay. If you the story behind it. that, you know, when uh, my son, they played their, East Granby High School played their senior day at um, Yard Goat Stadium in Hartford last year. And my son spent hours thinking of his walk-up song. And for some reason, Dancing Queen just came on. We thought of it. It was kind of funny, but kind of cool. And just that next day, Chris Shaw, who's a local kid that I know you guys know well, a BC kid, uh, who's in the major leagues. We followed his career. I spent a lot of time with him. He's been great to my boys. And there was something on MLB.com about him where he changed his walk-up to music to Dancing Queen. And he went off and hit about seven home runs at one week in AAA, got called up to the big leagues. And I think his second big league at bat went 478 feet to right field. And they, they did a big piece about his walk-up music being Dancing Queen. I remember calling him about it. But, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a good one. Chris Shaw, one of the brightest stars that's in the majors that's come through the Futures League circles. And yes, there you guys, go. he means a lot to me. Um, now, favorite big league player, whether it be current or historical? Probably Carlton Fisk. You know, I kind of grew up in that era where he was the guy and he was a catcher. It was just fun to follow his career. Obviously, Yaz was my dad's guy. And getting to actually spend time with Yaz years after the fact when I signed with the Red Sox. And Yaz was always, you know, he'd go there and he'd go to minor league camp because he wanted to be on the backfield, you know, but he'd be there being an instructor. I remember my first spring training. Um, I'm in Winter Haven. It was pitchers and catchers only at the time back when he used to do that. So there's five of us hitting on the field and I see a golf cart coming over. And you can't make this up. It's Carly Stremski and Ted Williams. And they come over, Carl goes out of the cart, you know, with a Diet Coke, smoking a heater. And I'm working on hitting line drives. And Yaz comes over. He yells, hey, stop. And I get out. He goes, look at your size. Okay, how big are you? All right, what are you doing hitting soft line drives the other way? Swing the – a lot of expletives in there too. But so Yaz was telling me to basically drop the backside collapse, uppercut, swing as hard as I could. But, you know, in, in spite of the hitting coach being right there. So – I simply did what Yes told me to do, hit a bunch of fly balls. How about a baseball nickname that you either have now or had during your playing days? I guess it was just, I don't know, we're just stuck, but it was just, I guess, just Big Ray, which is just ironic because 
I grew up any team I was ever on. I was the smallest kid, you know, all through high school. And, you know, I got to Sumption. I was 140 pounds and got out of Sumption maybe 170. But, you know, in the minor leagues, you know, I guess I was a beneficiary of drinking a lot of milk and working out a lot. But, uh, you know, my ba- I don't know what baseball card said, but I was always around the, you know, the 240, 245. But it was just like a big red. I guess that just stuck. But so it's a lot of fun. So I guess I just got to keep work out, working out and bench pressing just to, be able to continue to live up to that that's awesome yeah that's nice and simple as we've as we've heard with a lot of these nicknames here on the yeah. podcast how about any superstitions um those i never really had other than um just i was always a fanatic you know just idiosyncratic about my equipment and i think my wife can testify to that because you know there's still catcher's mitts laying all over the house and I got a big box of gear from my good friends at all star yesterday. My wife said, you've got far more catcher's gear and mitts than any current major league catcher could ever need, let alone you. But I was always just like really particular about my equipment. And I guess the big thing was on the field though, was just wearing wristbands. I had to have something on my wrist, just wearing wristbands and just having a really good mitt and a good cool set of gear. And, um, you know, I was never, be, I never had like, you know, the obligatory, the shin guard, the arm pad or anything. We kind of didn't have those, but I always had the wristbands. I always had the wristbands and, you know, just there's the nice shiny gear. And I guess just genetically that's transferred or something because uh, uh, last week at Lemonster, you know, my son was DH and he comes up and I hear out of the corner, my, you know, out of the corner, he gets introduced and one of the fans said in a good natured way, oh, here comes Mr. Accessories and <laughs> look at him. You had the wristbands, you had the elbow guard, you had the shin guard. Now, the shin guard legitimately because there's still, you know, you had the surgery and a steel plate and a bunch of screws in there. But uh, I just looked at him and said, what the heck? You know, why not? You know, these kids love that. These kids are as much into the gear as I was back then. But, you know, it's just, just fun to see. So I guess I transferred my uh, my love of gear and the accessories has, uh, has lived on. My son's got that. But that would be my big superstition was probably just always having more gear than I needed. Hey, you can never you can never have enough gear. Yeah, absolutely. That's my thought right now as I'm looking at four catchers miss and a big box from All Star <laughs> in the living room right now. Yeah. There you go. And then so you have four Red Sox rings. We're gonna ask you the tough question. Which one of the four is your favorite? Uh it's gotta go with number one. The first one, two thousand four. Unfortunately, does not fit. I got the wrong does not fit, so I don't wear it a whole lot. But the first few times, you know, I'd wear it to games. And at one time, I was covering the Manchester, New Hampshire Fisher Cats, double-A team, Eastern League. And somebody came over to see it between innings. And next thing I know, there's literally a line of people. And one of the ushers actually came down between innings. It was kind of like directing traffic, if you will, but everybody wanted to come and see the rain. But um, so that I don't wear them as much anymore. I've got them, you know, safely stored. But the four of them... Like I said, the first one's the most significant because, you know, that was that end of the drought. But, um, you know, having four of them, so now, like, the boys' kid, you know, all three of the boys have one now. My wife's got We still need one more. But uh, you get greedy. You want more of them. But that was just such a – it's such a thrill. And I actually pulled them out for the first time last year, all four of them. And, you know, took them out and showed them to somebody because, long story short, I went to somebody's house who was an avid collector and had an actual – Babe Ruth autographed baseball that he's proud to show me. And the balls was valued about $1.4 million. And he pulled out the ball and said, how about that? I said, you know, it'd be really cool. And I reached into my pocket, pulled out the four world series rings. So I'll send it to you guys. So I got a picture of a Babe Ruth, actual live Babe Ruth signed baseball with the four world series rings. So I know the Bambino in spite of his curse was looking down on that and smiling. It was pretty cool. But, uh, those four rings are really cool. And there's a fifth one that I really like that's probably worth about $19, but nevertheless means a lot to me. But I actually got a, I actually got a ring from the All-Star game in 99 when I caught there in the bullpen homer derby. So that one's pretty cool. But, uh, you know, those things are just, uh, they're just invaluable treasures. And that's what the goal is every year. And hopefully, you know, have a, get, a few, get a couple more of those. Got to get greedy. Get a couple more of those before my, uh, before my run is over here. Yeah, I'm sure the resale value on those things is incredible, but the sentimental memories and what they mean to you are far greater. Now, what I think you should do, I think you should get a chain and take a picture like Ortiz did with all five of the rings and send it to us. I will do that. I will definitely do that. I'll definitely send a picture of the Babe Ruth ball, but I got to do that. 
Beautiful. I might even wear the form to a game. That'd be really cool. Why not? Just let me know which one that is. I'll stop by. Sounds good. Be there. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm in the press box plenty if you want to come up and just brag about them or, I don't know, give me one. I'll make a trip up there next time. Absolutely. (laughs) Perfect. And then more more toward the general baseball questions. Bubblegum or sunflower seeds? Um, Big league chew, but I have the habit of that does not last long. I'll throw in the big league chew and then swallow it. But uh, sunflower seeds, which unfortunately, you know, because of the pandemic, has kind of been put on hold a little bit. But and they have to be plain. I will I will respect anybody's desire, anybody that likes barbecued or ranch or the salt and vinegar, whatever it is. But uh, I like David's plain. You can't, you know, that's that's the that's the goat right there. You can't get any better than David's. Like I said, the big league chew, but just not a lot of longevity there because I just end up swallowing it so fast. You go through it so fast, but. There's, and I go through my car and the trunk and my boys equipment bags. There's, you know, there's half open, there's half consumed David's bags everywhere. And then lastly, you have plenty, and I know this is going to be hard to choose, but how about a favorite all-time baseball memory? You know, all-star games got to be one. Um, the obvious ones were, you know, anytime I got, I can point to my three boys, each having a particular highlight on the field, which is just as a dad that usurps anything that I've ever done on the field, but. One of them is, um, you know, I'd been released by the Pirates, but I still wanted to play. So I was sitting at my desk at Cigna Corporation, Hartford. Um, you know, like I said, I've always stressed the academics. My parents always stressed that. So I did well in school. You know, I was a math geek. And I was probably the only professional catcher in baseball history that was an actuary in the offseason. And I was sitting at my desk on June 21st at Cigna. And the phone, you know, obviously no one, I, I wanted to play baseball some more. And the phone rang, and it was Ed Kenny, the farm director from the Red Sox. And he said, Ray, you know, we need a catcher. Do you want to play? And I said, absolutely. And I figured I'd be going to the Penn League because I was watching the College World Series, and we had just drafted Eric Wedge, but he hadn't signed. And so as it turns out, Todd Pratt, who spent a long time in the big leagues with the Pirates, with the Mets rather, had gotten hurt. So he said, uh, you know, we need you at New Britain. He said, can you get there tonight? When can you get there? He probably didn't expect for me to answer well in about 15 minutes, what I literally did. I said, I can be there in 15 minutes. And he said, well, what about your job? Because this is like a real job. He said, what about your job? I said, I don't care. I want to play baseball. I'm gone. So I told my boss about it, and they were very gracious enough to give me an extended leave of absence. So I showed up at New Britain Stadium about actually about a half an hour later in my, you know, my, my suit. And got in the game that night. So I went from, you know, the night before playing a company softball game at Cigna to where I was in a double-A lineup in New Britain. DHing, I believe Charlie Nagy pitched that night. But that was it. I mean, that's the ultimate. I mean, can't even make that story up. And then late, a couple, about a, a couple weeks later that summer, um, I actually played at three levels in, I'll say, 24 hours. Technically, it was a little bit over 24 hours, but... We had, one the, we had an afternoon game in New Britain, and um, I played in that game after the game. They told me I was being – Todd Pratt came off the DL, so I was being sent down to Winter Haven. So, you know, went to Bradley, got on a plane, went down to Winter Haven. That next morning, played in a Gulf Coast League game. In about the fourth inning, um, you know, the Winter Haven Complex was the big league spring training stadium in the backfield, so we're playing the Gulf Coast League game in the backfields. In about the fourth inning, Dave Holt, who was the Winter Haven manager, I could see him coming down the hill in the golf cart. And he came to the field, talked to the manager, and they pulled me off the field. And there was a double-A game that – there was a Class A game that night, you know, Winter Haven, the Florida State League. And John Flaherty, who caught for about 14 years in big leagues, broke his hand the night before. So I went from New Britain to Winter Haven Gulf Coast to that night I played in the game in Lakeland for, uh, you know, Winter Haven, the Florida State League. So it took over 24 hours. But, you know, three three levels in about twenty four hours. So that was a that was a, that was a fun one. That was a that was a memorable day. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you this, but I guess that's the grind of a minor league baseball player having to adjust and be flexible that's and doing whatever stuff. it takes. That's good stuff. Uh huh. All right. Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck with everything. Safe travels in your trip down to Birmingham and uh, wherever the next week takes you. And uh, we're really excited to see you on the diamond at a futures league game soon. Will do, and thank you so much for having me, and thanks especially for what you guys have done this summer for these kids in the area and for the scouts and for the game of baseball in this area. You've been a godsend. We appreciate it. Well, it means a lot to us, and we're really excited to get back to it soon and check out some of the scout days. Uh, Today, Monday, August 3rd, 
through Wednesday, August 5th will be the three scout days. Super excited to see we'll have coverage from all three of those. But for right now, this has been episode 20 of Back to the Futures, the official podcast of the Futures Collegiate Baseball League. We have new episodes coming out every Monday and Thursday. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. We're streaming on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see everyone soon.